Okay, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining. Today's class is again a combination. Baruch Hashem, a lot, a lot of good traveling the last couple of days, last couple of weeks. Uh, this time I was away for a simcha, Baruch Hashem. I want to dedicate this class in honor of my daughter, Yiti, in honor of her engagement and a wonderful chassan label. May Hashem bless them both, that the wedding should be Bishatoyvu Metzlachas, and they should build a home, a beautiful home. A beautiful home on the foundations of Torah Mitzvahs, with a lot of light, Yiddish, Yiddish light, Hasidish light, and only, only Simcha and wonderful, wonderful good things, which should be Yabinyan Adeyad, and a beautiful home, many happy, healthy children, many generations, and only, only good. That's a great thing. That's where I was away. Uh, Sunday, Monday, got back on Tuesday and uh, didn't catch up with the Parsha in my life yet. So let's do the Parsha in my life combination with Mashiach Matters as we've done last, last week and another time. And Ben Hashem, next week, with God's help, we'll be back in full schedule, hopefully in Yerushalayim, Yerach Kodesh. Okay, this week is a very unique and special week. It is Shabbos Parshas Devarim. It is also Shabbos Chazoin. And it is also Tisha B'Av. Now Tisha B'Av usually doesn't make us too happy. But I think Baruch Hashem, we have all the reason to believe and all the reason to hope that this time it will be different. This time it will be different. Um, what is going to be different? Why should it be different? So first of all, Tisha B'Av comes out on Shabbos. Now once Tisha B'Av comes out on Shabbos, everything changes. Not just does it come out on Shabbos, it comes out on a year, 5778, in which we've seen tremendous, 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 tremendous miracles, and wonderful, wonderful things that are pointing to the redemption. Um, being that I've been away a few weeks, I didn't discuss so much the events that happened recently that can, are even pointing even stronger and stronger and stronger to the redemption. So I'd like to do a little roundup of we might say the Hasidic spin on the news. So, um, in the beginning of the month of Tammuz, um, leading up to Shavasa Tammuz, which is the beginning of the three weeks, we the news that was going on there was a, a big, a big commotion, a lot, a lot, a big outcry, a very big cry um, in the entire country across the thing. Problem was that uh, the president was enforcing immigration laws. And as he was enforcing immigration laws, it wasn't his rule to separate the parents from the children. That was a previous rule. You can't, you can't arrest little children when they're coming across the border. You can arrest the parents. That was a, a rule instituted by previous administration, maybe by the Obama administration. I'm not exactly sure, but it was already set. It was only that um, they didn't crack down on the immigrants that were coming across. The, the current president, President Trump, was... Uh, did crack down and said made it a promise during his campaign and he was voted in to do that so he cracked down but what happened was they were arresting the parents and then you had the children and the children started to be gathered in these uh, holding areas and people saw that and said hey and it touched of course the soft spot in the hearts of millions of people across the world how do you do something so cruel separate parents from children now uh, whether a country it, has to be responsible and not have an open border and let everybody in is, 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 um, is a debate, it's a question. Obviously, we understand that you can't be a helper. You know, they always tell you on the plane, put on your own, um, put on your own uh, mask first and then you can help others. To help someone, you have to be strong. You have to be in a strong position. So when you have an open border and just let everybody in and there's no discrimination, you'll actually drain the country. If you, want to, if you're the, if you are a fantastic, wonderful, great human being and really want to feed everybody, anybody, every hungry person. Um, so maybe you should just leave your door open all night long and let anybody just come into your house and help themselves. I don't know if even if Avram Avinu did that. I know he had a tent and it was open from all four sides it was during the day. Did he keep it open all night long that anybody can come? I don't think so. Um, why? Because if people will come, they'll, they'll and, 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 and people that uh, not necessarily are up to good, they'll drain you and you won't be able to help anybody. They'll be, you'll be robbed and you won't be able to help anybody. 
So you have a lock and an alarm system and make sure your doors is well protected. And then when you're home and during the day and you can let people in and take care of everybody. So the same kind of an insanity is to say, let's just leave the borders open. A country is not a country if they have borders open. So it has to be closed and there has to be a system, of course. People need to come and immigrate from different countries and it has to be systemized in a way that it's fair and the like, that people can get in. So the system is set up and, uh, and if you crack down on illegal immigration, you are going to end up with a problem with children. If people are bringing children in, that's going to be a problem. Anyways, it was a big outcry across the country and it came from both sides. It came from the left, uh, that's not a chiddush, that's, that's to be expected, but it also came from the right. People were saying, how can you separate parents from children? Now I noticed something really interesting. Now, this is the first time that, if I remember, that the, the current president, who generally has a uh, inflate, a, 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 let's just say a healthy, a healthy sense of self and ego, um, healthy or whatever, a pretty, a pretty, a pretty big um, uh, sense of self-importance. So generally, doesn't like to admit that he does, did anything wrong. But in this case, it's the first time. Um, besides what happened this week, but what happened in the past is the first time that he walked back on something that he that he did, and he said, you know, he said, really, my heart goes out for the children, and he issued a executive order that you can't separate parents from children. That's what the executive order was. You can't separate parents from children. The media kept on screaming anyways, you know, whatever. But that on his part, he gave that executive order. What exactly you do, I don't know. But the executive order is that you can't separate parents from children. Now, as I mentioned, <coughs> it, right now, this year and last year, we are witnessing powerful forces that are spiritual forces that are driving and guiding everything that's happening in the world. And um, that as well, which was so, it's, it was such, it, it occupied the news. Again, we don't hear about it now that much, but it was occupying the news so much in the beginning of the month of Tammuz, leading up to the 17th of Tammuz. And I think it was, again, a sign from heaven for something, a messianic sign from heaven. The Gemara tells, the Zohar says, regarding the mitzvah of Shluach HaKan. Shluach HaKan is when you send away the mother bird and, um, and you take the children. It's a mitzvah, they take the children and you send away the mother bird. So the Zohar says that there's a deeper significance to this mitzvah. As one sends away the mother bird, the angel of the bird runs up in heaven and starts making a commotion. It starts to scream and yell and shout and with a powerful outcry. How can that be done? How can you separate children from the mother? And this is cruel and the like. And all the angels join along in this pitiful cry for this poor little bird. And as this cry resonates throughout all the worlds, it goes higher and higher and higher and it comes before God. God Almighty Hashem hears the cry of this bird and of the angels. And Hashem says, you're crying for the bird, you're crying for this bird, which is okay, I feel really bad for it. But how about crying for me, that I've been separated from my children for thousands of years, and everybody's okay with that? My children, my dear children, the Jewish people, which are considered my one and only child, has been separated from me already for 2,000 years that I'm longing and it says that God cries every night for his destruction of the temple and for his children that have been exiled from his land so this evokes tremendous divine mercy that's what it says so as the month of Thomas comes in and there is a chas shalom again a consideration to give a consent for another year of three weeks of mourning of commemoration and an endorsement, God forbid, for the exile to continue a little while longer. This is the time when that happens. So in order to prevent that right before, we had something amazing happening. The first thing we had was there was a cry that resonated from one end of the world to the other end of the world. How can you separate parents from children? Which that cry of separation of parents of children was heard on high without any shadow of a doubt. And it regards to God and the Jewish people as well. That the gullus is not fair. It has to be 
it has to come to an end, it has to, it has to conclude. The exile should not, cannot, and will not. Oh, Baruch Hashem, you're in. You came for the class, right? Good. It's happening now in the air, but you're here, so you're going to pick it up in the middle of it. No, I just started a little few minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, 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 it's being uh, filmed live, so. But now I have someone to actually physically talk to, so it helps. In any case, so the cry that went out across the country that something like that should not be and cannot be is also symbolic of the cry that God, that Hashem cannot retain or continue the exile. It's not fair. And when the president went and gave an executive order that parents should not be separated from their children, that executive order reflects, and it's and he, and he, what he's basically saying is, hey, hold it. Even though legally a crime was done, criminal activity was done, someone is here in the country illegally, or they crossed the border illegally, but you know what? It doesn't make a difference. It still does not excuse that children and, and parents should be separated. So in that case, even if, God forbid, there is reason based on our deservance of our deeds, even if, even if that's true, that there is still reason to keep the Jewish people in exile for just a tiny bit longer, the executive order, the executive is referring to God himself. God hands down an order and he says, no, parents and children may not be separated. We can't continue the exile. I thought that that event is very telling and very, very, very powerful. In, in a sense, the decree is, our mother Rachel, Rachel Menu, has been crying for thousands of years that her children, Rachel, Rachel cries for her children. And God says, the children will return to their homeland. So that's the first event that, ju- that just recently happened. And again, you can look at this event just as politics as usual, or you can realize that we're in the midst of the messianic process. And this is part of something which was huge. Now we go to the next event. The eyes of the entire world were glued to their televisions and to their news stations in looking at a phenomenon, a phenomenal rescue that just took place. Again, this happened last week. Twelve children from a um, soccer team. Uh, from Thailand, okay, so a place in the world, far off, distant, removed, you know, it's its own country, its own place. Generally, most people here in the United States, most people in Europe, don't identify so much with people in Thailand. I mean, it's human beings, everywhere human beings, but it's not. But yet, when these children got stuck in that cave, and they were stuck there for a while, and, uh, and then finally they, they, they located them. It was a whole thing to locate them. Finally they located them. And then the greatest brains and uh, what you might call uh, um, divers and rescuers from the entire world all came together and brought in the best equipment. Something must be done to take these children out. And in the end they decided on a very, very daring rescue. And I read about it a little bit more this week. Some more details came out. It, uh, really, really worth reading. It's amazing the risks that were taken, but that was the best. In other words, if they would wait another couple of months, the, if they would wait longer, if they wouldn't take them out this week, the danger of the monsoons coming in and the caves flooding even more, it would be possible, God forbid, that these children would have to stay there for another couple of months until they would get them out. And here... Um, they did something very daring. These divers risked their lives. They had to swim through three miles of caverns, sometimes murky, dark water where they couldn't see a thing. So dark was it that literally you couldn't see, because it was so murky, you couldn't see a rock. You couldn't see a stone. And these divers went two, at a, two divers at a time with taking each child individually out and when they were going through these narrow passages, the divers had to hold the children very close. The children were sedated a little bit, so they shouldn't freak out. That's how scary it was. 
and they had to take him through these narrow th- swimming through the water, and the diver had to risk crashing their own head in rocks because they couldn't see the stone, and they were afraid that if they I'll take the child and put the child, expose the child, and the child's head gets hit, then it might move their mask away, and then they would lose their oxygen, dislodge their oxygen mask, and then God forbid they would lose a child. They were sure that they would lose a few children, there would be a few deaths, God forbid, during this rescue. Miraculously, not one of these children died. One diver initially did die in the attempt of the, of the, of the, of the, of the rescue. But in addition to that, all 12 children came out. I'm sure this is going to be a phenomenal movie once they turn this into a, to a, uh, to a movie uh, to watch this, how they did it, what they did, what happened. Spectacular. It was one of the greatest feats of, um, of, of some kind of, of a rescue in all of history. But if you take a look at it and you think about it and you see, again, God is talking and he's talking very loud. We, the Jewish people, consist of 12 boys. We are 12 boys because there are 12 tribes of Israel. We are stuck in a cavern, in a cave, deep underground. That is the, the exile in which we find ourselves. Dark, dingy, no godly revelation, concealment, the murky waters all the garbage and all the darkness and all the suffering. And God says to the world, I will take my 12 boys out. And I will select them one by one. The Pasuk says, regarding, and Rashi brings it in, Pashas Nitzavim, Va'atem tiliktu b'nei Yisrael, echad echad b'nei Yisrael. And the Ebrister says, Rashi says, it's difficult for God to bring the redemption as if he himself needs to come and rescue every single Jew individually. One by one, this was a rescue, one by one, and it's difficult, and it was difficult, and it's daring and hard, yet it was accomplished. The 12 boys all came out. And here's another interesting thing. The boys belong to a soccer team. The Lubavitcher Rebbe once explained the game of soccer. And the Rebbe said, and then he called it football, because in, in the rest of the world, uh, it's called football. Here in America, they called it soccer because we had our own game of football. But in any case... Uh, or in Israel, at least, they call it Kadurregel, is soccer. Now, soccer, the game of soccer is, again, you have two teams, and they have to kick the ball into one goal and the other ball, and the other team tries to kick the ball into the other goal. The ball, the Rebbe says, represents the globe, the earth, the entire world. We are the team, the Jewish people are the soccer team. And our work is to kick the ball. Our work is to kick the ball. What's the ball? The ball is the globe. And our work over here is to kick the globe, which means to take the entire world and kick it into the goal, which is holiness, godliness. That's the space in which the world needs to go into. Our job is to literally, and, the, and here's the thing, and the other team, which means there's forces of darkness, the satanic forces, forces of evil, what we call sitra achra, the other side, and they're working to kick the ball into the other goal. What's the other goal? That's the space of the unholy. And here is a war that's going on throughout all of history. And the interesting thing is, we play that game primarily with our feet. Even though once in a while you'll have a head butt, but generally you don't use your hands, you're using your legs. And the reason the Rebbe says for that is because the greatest impact we have on this world is through action. Action is represented by feet. It's not through meditations and thinking and all that. That's all good for motivation. But as the, the Mishnah says in Pirkei Yavis, Fahamaisa hi ha'ikar. Much talk about doing things doesn't change the world. One action is better than, as it says in different places, one action is better than a thousand sighs. Sigh and this and that, all these things. Meetings and shmeetings, it has to come down to action. You have to get something done. This world is impacted by an action, by activity. That's why in the game of soccer, you use your feet. Feet represents Misa action. So you have a soccer team. The Jewish people are that soccer team. There are 12 players who got stuck in a cave. The 12 players are the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now it's not only 12 tribes. They were also saved with their coach, the 13th. Who is the coach? Maimonides, we know that Israel was divided into 12 portions of land. Maimonides, Rambam says that when Mashiach will come, we will not divide Israel into 12 portions. We will divide Israel into 13 portions. 12 for the 12 tribes. And the 13th portion, that's Moshiach's private land. That's what Rambam says. There's a 13th chelek which belongs to Moshiach. So now when we go back and we think about the 12 boys and their coach that is rescued, we know that Moshiach suffers along with the Jewish people in their exile. Chaleinu hu nasa, as it says in Yeshaya and Isaiah, talking about the terrible suffering that Moshiach suffers along with his people. So when the 12 boys are extracted from the cave, which represents the Jewish people, they are extracted together with their coach, which is Moshiach Tzitkenu. And again, each of them taken out individually with individual intention, uh, inten- uh, attention separately, miraculously. Unbelievable. F- and the whole world watched this happen. So again, there you go. Again, happening in the nine days or right before the nine days. God is literally speaking on a, on a, mega, a megaphone telling us, Jews, get ready, get excited. Moshiach is on his way. He's here. It's happening. Just be alert and recognize that this is what's going on. Number three. This week, the entire world, the United States, the media is actually going crazy. They're going insane. There was a meeting between President Trump and Putin. And they met and they discussed. And, and then Trump gave a, a, a uh, what we call a press conference and he didn't blame the Russians, he didn't blame Putin, and so on and so forth. I'm not getting into the political aspect of things. That's not so much my business. What I would like to say one thing is that everything that I see happening with the current administration is orchestrated, directed, completely by God. And it's, everything is always corrected by God. But this particularly is a Mashiach thing. And here's the idea. The more it upsets the media the more it upsets and it throws everything that we expect, or it, it throws the entire world for a, for a spin, the stronger it is an illustration that someone is meddling with the affairs of the world, the more unexpected it is. But at the same time, it's, it's natural, meaning it's, 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 as you see, someone is, inter- someone is meddling, someone is interfering. Who's interfering? Moshiach is interfering. This meeting between Putin and Trump, we still have to wait for the dust to settle. We don't know yet the outcome of it. No one knows what he discussed in the two-hour discussion. But one thing both of them have mentioned. Now, regarding to the safety of the United States, the position of the United States, and did we get stronger or weaker in this, I personally believe we did not get weaker. Um, But that's a different a, a, a subject and a discussion onto its own. And again, that would be my questioning my political views. That's un- irrelevant. What's important now is one thing. How does this reflect and how does this relate to the Jewish people? Now, one of the things that have been a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous threat to the Jewish people, to Israel, to the state of Israel, to the Jewish people, that are to six million, over 6 million Jews that are living in Israel, is that Iran is actually in Syria and strengthening through Hezbollah and through Iranian Revolutionary Guard, setting themselves up in Syria and trying to literally be next door to Israel so that, God forbid, they can do what they're planning to do a long time, and that is the complete annihilation of the state of Israel, the Jewish people in the land of Israel. That is their plan. They say it openly. The Khomeini say it openly. Now, a major problem over here was always, even though the United States, Obama sold us down the creek. We all know that. Um, Trump stopped, pulled out of the Iranian deal, the devastating Iranian deal. But there's only a certain limited amount of thing because as long as Russia is supporting Assad and is in cahoots with the Iranians and allowing the Iranians to operate in Syria, you can understand that we're very, very limited, the United States and Israel, on what we can do unless you want to pick a fight which can lead to world war with Russia. So you don't want to do that. So that allows 
God forbid, a looming, horrible danger to six million Jews living in the land of Israel. And when the two of them got together, the one agenda, the one thing that was clearly stated was that they are going to do, they're going to work on whatever they can to do to get Iran out of Syria, push them out. That is unbelievable. That the two most powerful people in the world have a meeting. The whole world is screaming. The whole world is upset. But they meet and a favor, a good thing comes out for the tiniest country that no one can even see on the map. That's their discussion and that's the positive that comes out of this meeting. Now since that's the positive that comes out of the meeting, it's, that's why I say it's going to end up being good for the entire world. Because if it's good for Israel, it's good for the entire world. But the, the, the notion that the two most powerful people are getting together for the good, like the Rebbe always would say, that when two Jews meet, they have to make sure that something good should come out for a third Jew. Here you have the two most powerful leaders in the world getting together. And again, what's the benefit that we see already? That we see already now is that they dealt and they spoke and that both of them said that Bibi Netanyahu is a good guy and we want to help Israel and we want to do... And, and that's awesome. That's crazy. But because of all this hype and negativity and spewing of anger and so on and so forth by the media, most people don't even notice this. Everybody's like, oh, blah, 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 what's Trump doing? First of all, it's not Trump doing. He's not doing anything. It's not Putin doing. It's amazing. These are two powerful countries. Russia has been a country of anti-Semitism, a Russia that has persecuted the Jewish people. Look what happened to it now. They support Chabad. They support the spreading of, of, of Judaism all over Russia. Even though Putin is no tzaddik, and that's awesome. He's no tzaddik. He's a dictator. He's whatever he is. But for some reason, when it comes to Israel, it comes to the Jewish people, at least in Russia, it was a tremendous support. Regarding Israel, it was here and here, here and there, and we didn't know. This week, they make a deal to help Israel, and it's very possible that it will be the Russians, Dafka, who will push the Iranians out. And more than that, if Russia feels that it gets better terms with the United States, and better terms with, uh, with, 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 with if, it, if, it, if it comes on the good side with President Trump and the like, and it does better with dealing with the United States and puts pressure or drops its, its, uh, its, its association with Iran, you're literally choking Iran completely, suffocating them till that whole regime will collapse. If, and we don't know, that could have happened during this meeting. So what I am saying is, what we are seeing is unbelievable messianic things that are taking place. Now, to add to that, Rambam describes the days of Mashiach as a time when, when Moshiach will come, the world is going to be filled with divine knowledge. And we are not going to have to be in pursuit of anything else because there will be tremendous wealth in the world. And it says, Madanim, that all the delicacies, all the, all the wealth, Mitsuyim, will be available to offer like dirt. There will be an influx of wealth in the world. It will be so available no one will be lacking. There will be like incredible amount of... So what else comes out in the news this week? Just this week. Scientists have discovered 200 miles beneath the ground. Quadrillion... I don't even know the, the, the numbers. I didn't read it. I, I don't have it right in front of me. Quadrillion. Who knows what kind... The amount of diamond... That is it. It's a thousand times more, not twice as much, not three times as much, four times, ten times, twenty times, a hundred times, two hundred times. Each time you're adding another, you're doubling it again. A thousand times more diamonds than they thought were in the world are now two hundred miles. Now, they have no they say there's no way they can drill so so far and get these diamonds out. Well, okay, that's with their technology that they have right now. Once Mashiach comes and Mashiach is going to be the smartest man ever to live, even wiser than King Solomon, I'm sure Mashiach can lend a little insight into how to get that diamond out. But whatever it is, once this diamond starts coming up, it says that diamonds are going to be so available. And so you see literally the fulfillment of everything it says about Mashiach. And it says that diamonds are going to be like worthless. It's going to be, it's going to be earth. 
So mamish messianic prophecies are taking place in front of our eyes every day. So we're literally living right now. And it's in the nine days, and it's a dark time. But at the same time, we're already seeing Mashiach. So it really works out well that this Shabbos is Tisha B'av, Because when Shabbos comes out on Tisha B'av, we're not going to have our regular gloomy, dark, sitting on the floor, ash on eggs, sad, tearful Tisha B'av, saying, lamenting and saying, Echa, we're going to sit and party the entire Shabbos, sing and dance, and have a huge, huge, huge thing, and hopefully we'll blow Tisha B'av away, never to see it ever again as a dark day, but only as a happy day. But let's first, build, let's kind of get a deeper appreciation and understanding of what it means, Shabbos Tisha B'av. So here's the idea. Number one, we have to realize that the month of Av really is a month when we wait for Mashiach. Because we have a promise, and so says in the Medrash, that God, when He, when he allowed, or when He brought about the, the uh, forces of destruction, the Babylonians first, and then the Romans, who destroyed our two temples, it, God forbid, was not to be a destruction. Because if it was to be a destruction, then God is liable. And God is liable, and He can be sued. And Hashem doesn't want to be sued. <laughs> might sound funny, but God could be sued big time based on a lawsuit from the Torah. And the Torah, it says, you may not destroy a, even one little stone on the altar, let alone the entire Beis Amigdash. You're not allowed to go to a shul and break something. If you break something in a shul, you're doing a sin. It says you should demolish, the Pasuk says you should demolish the homes, the temples of the idols. Do not do so to God, your God, which the sages learn out that you're not allowed to, God forbid, break anything that belongs to a sanctuary, let alone to the sanctuary of sanctuaries, the holy temple, the Beis Amigdash. And therefore, the only way God had permission to destroy the holy Beis Amigdash is only if He's building it with the intention to build a better structure. That's the rule. You're allowed to demolish a shul if you're planning to build a much, much better one. So the whole legitimacy for Hashem destroying the temple on the month of Av was only to destroy it, was only to rebuild it. But it was a demolition for the sake of a construction. Now, when is that construction supposed to happen? So the sages tell us in Yalkut as follows. This is what it says in Shira Shirim. Sorry, in the Medrash. No, Yalkut Shemoni in Yirmiyo. This is what the Medrash says. Allah Aryeh the lion came up, referring to Nebuchadnezzar. The mazal aryeh in the mazal of the lion. During the month of the mazal of the lion. Of the, the, uh, the sign, the astrological sign for the month of Av is a lion. Which is the fifth month. He destroyed the Beis Amigdash which is called Ariel, a lion. You know the temple looked like a lion? When you look at a lion, a lion is an interesting creature. He has a very broad front, front of his body and it gets narrower in the back all the way down to the narrow tail. But that's the way the lion is. He has a wide, his face is very, 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 very ferociously royal and big and huge, especially with that mane, and so is his shoulders, and then it gets narrow and narrow. If you look at the Holy Temple, it's called Ariel, because the temple also was broad in the front and narrow in the back. Beis Amigdash is called Ariel. And many things that the Beis Amigdash was like a... The altar on the Mizbeach had a fire burning on it that was the image of a lion. Anyways, the Beis Amigdash is called the lion. So Nebuchadnezzar comes on the month of the... who's called the lion, comes on the month of the lion, destroys the lion, and the Medrash says, Almanas, on the condition that he was only given permission to do that. On the condition that the lion, referring to God Almighty Himself, Hashem, will come during the month will come during the month of the lion, which is this month, the month of Av, and he will rebuild the temple, which is called the lion. So what do we see from here? We're expecting the third base of English to be built in the month of Av, and if that's not the case, then we had no right for the base of English to be destroyed. So therefore we have to know that God for sure is going to make that happen. So the month of Av is heightened time for redemption. In addition to that, the name of the month of Av is called Menachem Av, Menachem means we comfort. We call it, before we even say the word of, we say Menachem. Menachem means comfort and that's Moshiach. Moshiach himself, his name is Menachem, as the Gemara tells us. Now, 
in the month of Av itself, which we wait for Mashiach every day, we particularly wait for Mashiach on Tisha B'Av. Why do we wait for Mashiach on Tisha B'Av? Because the sages tell us an amazing story. The sages say that during the time when the temple was destroyed, there was a Jew, lived and was uh, far away from the Beis HaMikdash, from Jerusalem. And he was in the process of he was in the process of plowing his field. He didn't know about what's going on in the Beis HaMikdash. And he's plowing his field on the day of Tisha B'Av, 1,940-something years ago, when the temple was destroyed. An Arab was standing nearby, and, the, and, 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 and suddenly his cow that was harnessed to the plow made a weird crying sound. When the Arab heard that, the Arab tells the Jew, Hey Jew, remove the harness. Remove the harness from the cow. Let the cow go. Because there's no use. Why? Because your temple was just now destroyed. Now, what does he, what does he mean by that? The well, way I understand it. <laughs> Simple. If the base of is destroyed, why in the world, why in the world are you going to, why in the world are you plowing your field? You guys are going to exile. What do you? There's no. When you're plowing your fields, you're expecting to, 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 to plant, to sow your field, and to reap, reap the produce. But you're not staying here. You guys are going to exile. Then a few minutes later, the cow made another crying sound. So the Arab that's there says, "Hey, Jew, reharness the cow, because right now Mashiach was born." That's what the, the Medrash tells us. Story: Mashiach is born right now. So therefore, get back to plowing. And from here we say, from here we learn out that Mashiach is born on Tisha B'Av. It's interesting, Medrash. The Medrash actually says that this man asked the Arab, where is Mashiach? Where is that little boy? Where was he born? And the Medrash says, and the Medrash says, the Medrash says that the Arab that the, that the Arab told him where the boy was, where he's born, and this man went to the town there, and he wanted to see this little baby. It's a fascinating story. And when he comes there, and he told him that he gave him a sign on who the mother of the baby is. This boy, this man went there, and he pretended that he's selling children's clothing. So all the mothers came to the market to buy, and particularly this woman, she didn't buy. I think he, I think he told her the name of the, of the mother or something like that, the name of the family. So when he found out, he said, how come this mother doesn't want to buy for her child? So he asked her why she's not born. She said she hates her child. Why does she hate her child? Because he's born on Tisha B'Av. And it's such a sad day that her child, she feels it was such bad luck, such a bad day to come into the world. You see, the mother of Mashiach hates her own child, not knowing that he's Mashiach. It's crazy Medrash. Medrashim are so cool. <laughs> it's like a crazy thing. So then he convinces her that he's going to give her the garment anyways, and she'll pay him another time, something like that. And he comes back a few months later, and uh, he sees her again in the market. He wants to ask her how her baby is. And she says, the baby disappeared. She says, the wind came and blew her baby away. That's the story. That's the matters. So whatever it is, whatever this means, I'm not going to get into it. And obviously it has an allegoric, metaphoric meaning. But the idea is Moshiach is born on Tisha B'Av. Now we also know the rule. that The Gemara says, the Jerusalem Talmud says, that on a person's birthday, their luck, their mazel is very strong. So that's why we know that on a birthday, a person has a power to give a blessing. You have extra energy on your birthday. If Mashiach is born on, 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 on Tisha B'Av, that means the energy of Mashiach is the strongest in the world on Tisha B'Av. So that's why if we wait for Mashiach, the month of Av in general, the strongest day of Mashiach is actually Tisha B'Av itself. Now to illustrate that even stronger, in Tisha B'Av itself, it's from midday on Tisha B'Av. Cham we know we lighten up on the, on the morning. We don't sit on the ground anymore. You can sit on a regular bench. We're a, little, we're a little more lenient in various different things that you don't do before Tisha B'Av midday. But once it's midday, you can do certain things that you couldn't do earlier. Now the question is asked, how come? The truth is that we know that the, the, the Beit Samikdash was actually the... Romans ignited the temple and burnt it, set it on fire, set the base of on fire 
towards evening on Tisha B'Av, the night going to the next day, the 10th of Av. There's even a thought that we should have made the 10th of Av a fast day. That's how, how significant it was, that should have even made the 10th of Av the fast day, not Tisha B'Av. So then the question is, why would you lighten up the second half of... So the Arizal in Kizve Ari, this week was the Yorzai, the Ari, they asked the question. And especially we do something else. We know that on Tisha B'av, by Mincha, we already speak about comfort. We say Nachem. And for the, we also know we don't put on tefillin in the morning, on Tisha B'av, because of the morning. But we put on the tefillin in the afternoon by Mincha. And we say Nachem. Nachem means comfort. So the Arizal explains the reason is because afternoon, even though on the one hand, the golos, the burning of the temple happened, if you look deep, deep, deep inside, it was at that moment that Moshiach is born. And since Moshiach is born, and Tisha B'Av in the afternoon, we are already seeing Giyula, we don't see this. So we're lightening up. We say Nachem, and the Arizal says, Moshiach, whose name is Menachem. That's what we say, Nachem. The words of the Arizal. So you see from here, that particularly, and then another thing, we know another, another passage of the Ari. Uh, they, they say that they ask Reb Chaim Vital, a student of the Arizal, when he was in Damascus. There's a lush in there in Priyat Chaim. They asked Reb Chaim Vital when he was in Damascus. What's the reason we say Kiddush Levana? We bless the new moon on Tisha B'av. And Reb Chaim Vital answered the reason we do it on Tisha B'av is because on Matzah Tisha, not on Tisha B'av, on when Tisha B'av goes out at night, we go out because the blessing of the new moon is the moon represents the kingdom of David HaMelech and the Shekhinah and the Jewish people are compared to the moon. And he says we want to be mevaser. I'm sorry, he doesn't bring David HaMelech over here in this passage. He just says we want to give a besura. We want to bring good news. We want to bring comfort and good news both to the Shekhinah and the Jewish people the Jewish people down here and the Shekhinah up there, which is the moon, that we're going to be, re- just like the moon has its descent and then it reappears again in all its glory, so too the Jewish people are going to be rise again. And the moon and the Shekhinah is going to come out of exile. So all of that happens on Tisha B'av. So we see over here that Tisha B'av, even though in many, many ways we always looked at it as such a dark time, but internally it's really, really, really the time of the redemption. So on Tisha B'Av, we really rate for Mashiach. But the problem is, all the years, when Tisha B'Av comes out in a regular setting, even though in Tisha B'Av there is a seed, there's a silver lining, there is a seed of Mashiach light, a kernel, a little, 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 little point of brilliant light in that darkness, it's hidden under a lot, a lot of darkness, under a lot of sadness, under all the persecution, blood and tears. That's what we have, our primary experience of Tisha. Inside, somewhere there, there is a little glimmer of hope. That's when we have Tisha B'Av in a regular year. But when Tisha B'Av comes out on Shabbos, Shabbos doesn't allow us to fast. Shabbos doesn't allow us to mourn. So Shabbos pushes away all the gloom and doom of Tisha B'Av. But the one thing Shabbos doesn't push away is the spark of redemption that's in Tisha B'av. The Giyula, the light, the birth of Mashiach, that's not pushed away by Shabbos. And if someone will argue and they will say, hold it, maybe Shabbos, once it pushes away Tisha B'av, it pushes away the entire thing, even the positive point of Tisha B'av. It's not Tisha B'av. This, this year, Tisha B'av is no Tisha B'av, because Shabbos, okay, we'll do it on the 10th day of Av, but Tisha B'av is kind of side-swept. Side that's what we might argue. Because logically, we don't, we, we erase Tisha B'Av on the calendar because Shabbos overrides it. But then it would override also the good. We can't say that. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe says the reason we can't say it, hear this, it's an amazing thing. On the last Shabbos Tisha B'Av the Rebbe spoke to us. It was exactly the same like this year in Nun in 1991. Everything that year comes out exactly like this year. It's amazing. So in that Tisha B'Av, the Rebbe then said an amazing thing. He says that if we would say that the calendar that it comes out on Shabbos um, cancels Tisha B'av completely, including the good that's in Tisha B'av. That would mean that there would that the natural order. Now, why is Tisha B'av coming out on Shabbos? Because that's the way 
system of time worked out. This idea that, it's, that the ninth above has to do with the calendar. Calendar is set on what? On the different cycles of the lunar cycle and the solar cycle. And that's how we set the calendar. But how do we set the calendar? Based on a, on a feature of nature. On natural phenomena. And that would mean that the natural world is interfering with our Tishabov. Now generally it's a good thing. But if we're saying it's interfering also with the fact that this is a celebra- it's a day of celebration because Mashiach is born, that means that the world would be interfering with a good thing for the Jewish people. And that can't be. And here's just the brilliance. Very simple reason why. The whole natural world, including all the galaxies and the rotations and the suns, and time and space was created for the sake of Israel and for the sake of the, and for the, sake of the Torah. For the sake of the Jewish people and for the sake of the, of the Torah. So if it's created for the sake of the Jewish people and the sake of the Torah, how can it do damage to the Jewish people? Their whole business of existing time itself exists only to help and support the Jewish people. So you can't have anything in time coming and ruining it for us. Giving, oh, it's like, you know, you plan a party and the rain comes and ruins the, ruins the party. It rained, on, it rained on the parade. Nature can't rain on, 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 on the Jewish parade. Even though sometimes, okay, we see that certain things in the world happen bad. But that's because of sin. That's negative things. But the calendar is not to do with sin. It's the calendar that's been set up. So this would mean nature. It's nothing to do because of some kind of retribution, punishment that God is doing. This is just a system of time. Time cannot harm the, the, the good for the Jewish people. So, and to add to that, especially which time do we want to say erases Tisha B'Av? Shabbos. That would mean that Shabbos would be due damage to the Jewish people. Can Shabbos damage the Jewish people? Absolutely not. Because Shabbos and the Jewish people are particularly pure. The Gemara, the Medr says, when Hashem created the world, every day of the week had a buddy. It was a buddy system. Sunday buddied up with Monday. Everybody had a friend. Monday had company with Tuesday. Each of them were, were in peers. They get, you know. And Shabbos came along. Shabbos says, I am peerless. I'm the odd number. I'm the odd guy on the block. Everybody has company. Everybody has a friend. I'm sitting alone. Everybody's sitting in a restaurant together. With, I'm alone. So God says, no, 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 you're special. You have a special, special partner. The partner for you are the Jewish people. Shabbos is called Benzuk. It's like the partner of the Jewish people. Shabbos can definitely not harm the Jewish people. So then we have to say that what? That if Shabbos comes along and does away with Tisha B'Av, it only does away with, you know, the diamond is inside the rough. Every year, the rough covers on the diamond. Shabbos this year blows away the rough sturdy stone, and all it focuses its laser beam light on the diamond. On what? On Moshiach. This Tisha B'Av, you only have Mashiach energy. And that is true any Shabbos. This Shabbos is Shabbos Chazoin. Shabbos Chazoin means a vision. And according to, simply it's because of a negative vision. We see destruction and so forth. The Navi talks about negative things. But the Hasidic interpretation, which is already the more Messianic interpretation, as we get closer to Mashiach, the Holy Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, says that the meaning of Shabbos Chazon is that this Shabbos, every Jew gets shown individually the third temple. Hashem shows us the vision, the third base of Mingdash. So if this is Shabbos of the vision of the third base of Mingdash, what's Mashiach? Mashiach redeems the world, gives us the third temple. This is a Shabbos of the vision of the third temple. And it's so, so crystal clear, we can almost touch it. The vision, we see the third base of Mingdash on this Shabbos, Shabbos Chazayin, Shabbos Tishabav, such a Shabbos can definitely not destroy the good of, 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 of the day of Tishabav. So what does it do? It only enhances it. So what happens on this Shabbos? What we have on this Shabbos is just super duper light tish, um, the, the Moshiach's birth, only the light, only the revelation, only holiness and only godliness. To make that even stronger. Particularly on this Shabbos, when, how do we experience Mashiach on the Shabbos? In the meals. Because the, the Chiddush of Shabbos this week is that we're going to be eating. The fact that we're davening, okay. Okay, we're davening. That we do, that, that Tisha B'Av, we also daven. We don't daven the exact same davening, but we daven. But eating, we don't eat. And this Shabbos, we're going to be eating. So the main thing to pay attention on this Shabbos is to the food, to the eating, to the meals. 
So the meals of this Shabbos is very, very powerful. They're Messianic meals. And in general we know that the three meals of Shabbos relate to the futuristic meal which God is going to throw a party when Mashiach comes. This Shabbos, every single one of your Shabbos meals is the feast of the world to come. The feast of Mashiach. Especially, especially, everybody here, especially, especially the third meal. The third meal which is coming to replace that gloomy, dark meal that we sit on the floor and eat ashes and eggs. This Shabbos Mincha meal, you can eat and feast on the best foods. That's what it says in Halacha. Halacha says that on this Shabbos, you're allowed to, usually Shabbos, Sudas Amafsekes, the, the meal right before Tisha B'Av, we have to minimize, or only have one cooked dish. As I say, usually we eat an egg with ashes and sit on the floor, it's egans and fachmurit, it's dark, it's horrible. This Shabbos, the Halacha is that a person can bring on to their table, Kisudas Shloimai Bishatai, like the meal of King Solomon and the heyday of King Solomon. You know what kind of meal that was? You're allowed to create such a meal. So the Rebbe says an amazing thing. When it says, Kisudas Shlomo, like the Suda of Shlomo, you say, okay, <laughs> who's going to afford to make King Solomon's meal? So that's why we say, like King Solomon's meal. Because I don't have the money to, to, to bring, you know, you know uh, 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 um, all kinds of, 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 of the finest prime rib and, 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 and who knows what. And the best foods, we don't, you know. So we can do similar to Shlomo Amela. No, it's the opposite. The reason why it says, like the meal of Shlomo, is because Shlomo's meals can't compare to the meal of our Shabbos. Why? Because when Mashiach will come, the meal that's going to be is going to be much greater than King Solomon. So when you're sitting down this Shabbos to your last meal, make sure to really make this a party like we've never had before. Have the Lachayim's ready, have the feast ready, and feast like crazy, because that's the meal when Mashiach is born. And this year, when we have zero, 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 you know, darkness left, you see already all the miracles that are happening, the world is becoming so Mashiach already, let's celebrate it, let's take it to the extreme of the greatest party and the greatest celebration. We all have it on the Shabbos. To... And then the, the, the one last interesting thing is, is that we know that there's a parallel, most people don't think about this, between Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur. We know that these are the only two fasts that we have in the year in which we fast 24 hours. Generally the fasts are um, only for the day. The only two fasts that's a 24 hour. Also the only two fasts that are forbidden on all the five things. You know, we don't wear leather shoes, we don't wash our hands and the things. So these only Tisha B'Av, so Tisha Kippur are. But we know that Tisha B'Av Kippur, as similar as they are, you couldn't have two opposite, more opposite days. You know, one of the great tzaddikim once said that it's not, fasting Tisha B'Av Kippur is not hard, he said. Because he said, on Yom Kippur, ver darf essen, and on Tisha B'Av ver ken essen. So what does that mean? And yet that's Yiddish. So in, 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 in English it means like this. On Yom Kippur, who needs to eat? You're in such a spiritual high Yom Kippur. You're an angel in heaven. You're like, wow. God is like so close to every single one. It's the, you're, you're, in, you're in the Holy of Holies. You know, who can think of food? It, it, like you're, who needs to eat? You don't have to eat on such a, on such a day. On, Yom, on Tisha B'Av, you're feeling so lousy. You're so in the pits. You're so, who, who could eat? You're so nauseous. You're so sick. Because Tisha B'Av is such a dark... That's what one of the great tzaddikim said. So you, these two days are total opposites. That's regularly. But when we look a little deeper, we see that the two of them are really... are deeper connected. Tisha B'Av and Yom Not just that similar in the halacha, but they're similar in terms of content as well. Where do we find it? we find that even though Tisha B'Av is a very, 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 very dark day, spiritually low day, the lowest point in our calendar, a few days after Tisha B'Av, we soar up to the greatest heights. The sages say that there weren't any holidays to the Jewish people like the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. 
the greatest holiday in the time of the temple, time of the Beis Hamikdash, the greatest holiday the Jewish people had was Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. I'm sorry, Yom Kippur and the fifteenth of Av, Tuba Av. And the sages give all kinds of reasons why the fifteenth of Av was such a great Yom. These were both days that we made Shaduchim. Right, people got married on those days, and there was great. Right, was great celebration. The fact that they equated Dafka to Yom Kippur, it's not just because these were two great days, it's because intrinsically they're one. But that's the 15th of Av. What does it have to do with Tisha B'Av? The answer is, the whole, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, the whole celebration of the 15th of Av, the 15th of Av is the Tikkun, it's the fixing of Tisha B'Av. Because Tisha B'Av was so low, the 15th of Av, which is the elevation that comes afterwards, from the darkness comes the light. From the lowest we fly up to the highest. That means, that means, but really, it says, that the, the whole point of the 15th of Av, it's a day of the future world. It belongs already to the days of Mashiach. It's related to the third temple, 15th of Av. And what it really is doing is, it's revealing what's really the, the treasure, the diamond that is buried in Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av itself, as we experience, is dark, but it's a darkness that's covering on a diamond, that's covering on the greatest light. On Tisha B'Av, we can't see the light. When Tisha B'Av comes out during the week, we can't see the light. We only see the darkness. It's hiding the diamond. On the 15th of Av, we discover retroactively going back, we discover the diamond, the brilliant diamond that's hidden in Tisha B'Av, which is the kernel of the redemption, the future redemption. This year, however, when Shabbos, when Tisha B'Av comes out on Shabbos, and as we said before, all the external layers of Tisha B'Av are blown away from Shabbos. And all you're left with this Tisha B'Av is the light of Tisha B'Av. So which, which light is it? It's the light of the future redemption, which is the light of the 15th of Av, which is similar to the light of Yom Kippur, which Yom Kippur and the 15th of Av both are equal. So what does that really tell you? That Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur at its core, in its essence, are really the same. Now we know what the sages tell us on Yom Kippur, an amazing thing. On Yom Kippur, we fast on the 10th day of Tishrei. But we're supposed to eat a lot on the 9th day. We eat on the 9th day, and we fast on the 10th day. The sages say that anybody that eats on the 9th day, Maila Olav Akasav, the Pasuk considers it as if he fasted the 9th and the 10th. Ah, so now watch the amazing thing. This year comes out the same thing. We fast on the 10th because we roll Tisha B'Av over to Sunday. And we, we feast on the 9th. And actually, it, the Rebbe wants to say that we have a mitzvah this, this Tisha B'Av to eat extra. Eat the amount for two days. So on the 9th, so we're doing the same thing like in Kippur. Eating on the 9th, fasting on the 10th. The truth is, this year, since Moshiach is for sure going to arrive by Shabbos, and definitely on Shabbos, because again, as we see all the things that are happening, purely godly, purely Mashiach day, what's going to happen? Is that the 10th day, we're going to eat the 9th, and we're going to eat the 10th. So it's, but, so it's different than Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, we eat the 9th, and we fast the 10th. Here we're going to eat the 9th, and eat the 10th. But hold it. Is there ever a time that on Yom Kippur we eat on the 10th? Yom Kippur we always fast on the 10th. Do we ever eat on the 10th? Yes, one time. When the first temple was built, the seven days of celebration coincided with Yom Kippur. And that year they ate on Yom Kippur. So it's possible that Yom Kippur you can eat the 9th and the 10th. This year we're going to eat the 9th and the 10th, hopefully. We're going to turn over Tisha B'Av. should be a feast for the 9th and the 10th. Wow! So now we have a comparison between the 9th and 10th of Tishrei and the 9th and 10th of, 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 of Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur as they converge together to form the greatest, holiest, godliest moments in the entire year. May we merit that this Tisha B'Av, we won't even dream of fasting. We will have such simcha, such joy, such happiness, such amazing celebration.
But we have to sit the entire Shabbos this week and have one long feast party for bringing. No sadness, singing, dancing, waiting the Giyula, knowing Mashiach is here, he's happening, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening now, it's happening in the world, it's happening in front of our eyes, and we merit already to put an end to all exile and all darkness and sing and dance forever and ever, Ezra Hashem already, this Tisha B'Av Shachal Shabbos. May it happen now.